You're listening to Japanese Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to a new episode of JBC Connect. I have two good friends here joining me, uh, Reverend Paul Schneider and uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Bob Reed. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have both of them here on this episode. And I'm going to frame today. We're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to talk about a new series that came out on Netflix called Midnight Mass. And I'm going to just uh, tell you the most important thing before we do anything else is that there's spoilers. We're going to talk about the whole thing from start to finish. So if you want to really engage in it, you're welcome to watch it, but don't feel the pressure either. We're not endorsing it necessarily, but we just felt that uh, there was a lot of interesting topics and conversations that could come up. And I'm going to talk hopefully a little bit at the end about why these kind of conversations about pop culture are really important. So um, I thought it was a very thought-provoking, very ambitious uh, series. And before we get into that, uh, I thought it'd be great to maybe introduce um, two of my friends here uh, before we go too far into our conversation. So um, maybe Paul and then Bob, you could just tell a little bit about yourself for uh, those who may not be as familiar with you. Hi, I'm uh, Reverend Paul Schneider. I am the pastor of Berrien Community Church in Berrien, Washington, and I am currently doing doctoral work at the Berkeley School of Theology around the intersections of faith and pop culture. Great. Hi, I'm Bob Reed, and I uh, am retired at this point, an emeritus professor uh, who was the uh, department chair uh, of a communication department uh, and also the director of a graduate degree program. And I have, since in the last six years, living in the Seattle area, have been doing interim pastorates since my initial uh, occupation in life had also been to be a pastor. And so uh, with that, I bring both theology and some understanding of some of the things that go on with communication and popular culture to bear. Great. And so I, I want to just uh, preface a bit this whole time together with just like our general impressions of the series. And uh, I want everyone to know is like, I actually had no idea about Midnight Mass. I didn't know about it because I was just doing a presentation at our annual meeting for our pastors. And uh, Bob was in the discussion and he just said, like, have you heard about Midnight Mass? Like, it's just, it's touching on these really amazing, like sociological, theological, you know, philosophical points. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of it. And he says, like, this would be great for a podcast. And, uh, and then Paul, uh, you wrote to me uh, soon after that saying, like, I would love to be a part of this kind of discussion. This is exactly what I'm studying. This is what I'm passionate about. And then I was like, okay, well, let's do it. And then I finally just clicked on, like, well, what is Midnight Mass? And then I'm like, oh, okay. It's actually like a supernatural, like, mystery, suspense, horror, something. And I was like, I had no idea. So, um, uh, and that's, uh, but that was kind of exciting about it. Just like, I'm going to dive into this. I have no connection. And I did all my research I did about it was actually after I watched it. And I, I didn't realize he was connected to this movie or this series. So it's really fascinating. Um, I guess my quick general impressions of it is when I was watching it, the immediate feel and thought I had was, because actually, I don't know if you both of you know, I, I'm very interested in film studies. Um, I freelance soundtrack compose for indie films and uh, I've always loved film from a young age. And so I love high culture, low culture. So when I'm watching uh, Midnight Mass, I was immediately thinking of The Exorcist. These, um, these films that kind of use a genre and then there's moments of like what I call like transcendence where they kind of like subvert their genre and they, 
you start, you all of a sudden realize you're talking about so much more, you know? Um, I think also of like uh, Solaris, uh, you know, the Russian sci-fi film that definitely did things like that. Uh, you know, we were just talking about Dune, Paul, like just these moments where you think it's a certain genre and you kind of boxed it in and then you realize, oh, it's so much more than that. It's really transcending genres to talk about so much more. And so it was quite a ride. I, I think it was a bit of a longer arc. It was hard for me to watch because like I had like a theologian in me talking like as I was watching it, but then I had a pastor in me watching. And then I also have like a film kind of critique going on too. So I'm like, like there was moments where I was like, oh, you know, like the dialogue or the timing or the editing, I didn't feel good about, but this, the content of this dialogue was amazing. But then what does that say theologically? So I felt like I was watching this film constantly on like four levels, if that makes sense. Uh, which, but I walked away thinking like, this is profoundly ambitious. Um, I think it, I think sometimes it really lands. Uh, not always, I felt some ways too, but what it's talking about was really interesting. And the timing of it when it came out is really interesting to me as well. So just some general thoughts and we'll get into that. But um, maybe Paul, I thought I'd just hand it over to you. What were some of your general impressions about Midnight Mass as a whole? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so like you, I came to it kind of with only uh, the vaguest idea of what it was. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew it was something that was pretty popular. I could see that it was up there in the Netflix rankings and everything. Um, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that kind of caught me out right away as a pastor was that all of the episode titles were books of the Bible. And right. I was like, okay, so, so they're deliberately framing this in, in, in these terms. So then how does that change how I'm thinking about this? And so like you, I kind of had that, that um, multivalent experience with it where I was looking at it at multiple levels. One of the, one of the things that really caught me out and it really bugged me until I realized it was just an error um, and, and, and I've, I've almost let it go was that uh, in the first episode, she says it's the seventh Sunday of ordinary time, which happens after Pentecost. And I think she actually meant to say that it was the seventh sun Sunday of Epiphany tide or after Epiphany, which. <laughs> oh yeah. But it yeah. bugged me. It bugged me for, for a while. And, and, right. and I was watching this with my eldest kid. And so periodically I'd pause it and I'd, I'd go off about, uh, you know, some, some church thing that I was like, that didn't line up the way it was supposed to, but, um, <laughs> but for the most part, I was, I was, I was actually really thrilled by it. And I thought that, huh. um, one of the things that it did really well was it was a sincere um, attempt to look at faith, both the good and the bad of it, right? The, yeah. the, 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 the positives and the negatives and the ways that faith can be something that lifts people up from despair and also the ways that faith can be twisted and weaponized. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so to me, I mean, I think we're living in a society these days where where that that happens with faith quite regularly, um, both, again, the lifting up from despair and the weaponizing of faith. And so it made it all that much more relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Lots of really good things in there. Uh, hopefully we'll get to swing back to some of those things you talked about, Paul, because like, um, uh, I definitely agree with you. And I did not catch that liturgical calendar. Good for you. Good for you. Good pastor. Uh, anyways, um, Bob, I want to hand it over to you. What were some of your uh, general impressions of uh, the series? To frame what I want to say about general impressions, I first want to draw out a comment that uh, you made when we were early watching. When I first suggested this, you said, oh, 
uh, hard. That's not my genre. I don't like watching stuff like that. And one of the things I discovered a number of years ago is, is that genres like that or certain science fiction and stuff like that, they allow people to ask questions and explore uh, questions of meaning and purpose and identity in ways that your police procedural, your, you know, whatever the other kind of genres that are out there, they, they don't do that. And so one of the things, I don't know that all horror does this, but occasionally you'll find somebody who's doing this, that that is actually their purpose, that mm -hmm. the horror story in a sense is secondary to the larger question uh, that they're asking about meaning and purpose in life. And boy, this series to me really engages that. There are long conversations that some of the characters have about whether faith matters or doesn't matter, uh, whether religion even matters anymore or doesn't matter. And for me, what I find is that is exactly the question that we in the church need to be asking as well, because uh, we are at a tipping point, I think, from um, almost 2,000 years of doing Christendom Christianity and doing religion in a certain kind of way inside the box. And I think right now we're, we're really asking some questions about what does religion, what, what does Christianity or faith look like that isn't necessarily, quote, religion, at least how we previously understood it. And genres like this in the popular culture even when they're done by people who are asking those their questions just as a layperson trying to figure this out for themselves, pose, I think, interesting points of conversation for us to begin to see our way of people who've been trained to be in the box, to look at religion and think this and figure out lectionary and all those kinds of things. These people aren't caught up in those kind of questions. They're asking deeper questions about life and whether how, how does life matter? How, is there a possibility of redemption for things in our life? Can we ever find forgiveness if we've done terrible things? Oh, how, how does one understand what your life is even supposed to be? I think sometimes popular culture, especially when it's not particularly intending to be moralistically religion, can pose some of those questions in some of its art and it's media and film. And I think when it does, that's powerful. Uh, my son who has passed away, when I was living in Iowa and he was living out here in the East Coast, we were trying to talk and have some things to talk because you can talk for an hour right? and now with cell phones and all that. So one of the things I found to connect with him was is that I learned that one of the television programs he was in love with as a person who was not particularly interested in faith I realized after watching a couple of episodes just to have something to talk with him was the most religious program on TV. It's called The Walking Dead. And I thought it was the most religious program on TV because every episode had only one question at the heart of it. How can you find hope in a world where there's no hope? Every episode was people struggling to figure out if there's hope. They weren't necessarily finding it religion, but they were desperately looking for hope. And I think Christianity was born in a world where people were looking for hope. So yeah. culture look for that, I think are fascinating. Yeah, and you know, I think that's, well, maybe we should just kind of, this maybe should be the opening question. I kind of wanted to land here at the end, but what you're talking about is really what I agree with. And that's why I was also mentioning The Exorcist because The Exorcist is definitely in the genre of horror, but I definitely had moments when I was watching it, the scene where like, I think there's just like a brief pause, like before the final exorcism where, uh, you know, the, the priest is talking about like, why does God let, you know, these things happen? And you just get this very like transcendent moment. You're like, oh, this is actually so much more than just horror, like, and gore. 
And I think that's what is the most exciting thing about arts is like what you're talking about is like the subversiveness, right? Like I think Eugene Peterson talks about subversive spirituality, like you're telling it slant. So it's almost like it gets around our original, uh, I guess, walls and borders, right? And kind of finds a way to go around and like it, it lets down our defenses. Interestingly, Bob, what you're talking about, I read an article um, about someone who was actually offended by Midnight Mass because they said, I go to Midnight Mass to get away from religion. I go, I go there to not talk about these things. And I feel like you ambushed me and you, you made me like talk with God or something like that. And they felt like deceived, you know, and they were very upset about this thing because like it was so religious and so heavy. Like I came for a horror, uh, you know, a good horror and you didn't give it to me. And um, so I think that's, that's kind of interesting, right? But like that kind of person probably would not have wanted to engage because like she was traumatized by religion. And so it's interesting how the arts can kind of create these conversations that we never have chosen willingly maybe, but to talk about greater things. Um, and I think that's really exciting. Um, and, you know, Paul, I wonder if it's interesting, like if you wanted to talk a bit more about like your fascination with doing your doctoral on this like intersection of like pop and theology. Like what brought you to that? Sure. So, um, I mean, I've been deeply rooted in pop culture. We all are, whether or not we're really aware of it, right? It, to some degree, is 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 the water we're swimming in, um, mm -hmm. and like the fish, we're not really aware of of that fact. But, um, you know, as I was as I was uh, working my way through seminary, um, getting my my um, my master's of divinity, um, I, I came to realize that a lot of these things that I had taken for granted, these things that I had still found very formative, um, had these sort of spiritual implications to them. Um, and some of that was because I was who I was when I encountered it, but some of that was just they were deliberately written to provoke those kinds of questions, um, uh, and or, or at least opened the door to it if 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 you were interested in that. Um, but I think that the church writ large has largely has largely stepped away from pop culture um there's this there's this sense that that that's of the world and in the world and therefore it has no business in the church um and i i just don't find that 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 perception to be particularly helpful if the goal of the church is to communicate the gospel right to communicate the good news then we need to do it in the language that the people are speaking Right. This is why uh, Luther wrote the Bible in German. Why Wycliffe got translated the Bible into English. You know, they realized that these that that, that being able to hear these words um, with the language and the stories um, in their own language, in, in someone's native language, really made a difference. And um, and the the meaning making stories that we find in pop culture that's that's kind of the language of today and and for the church to not engage them i think is um not only uh irresponsible but but is largely uh largely uh kind of explains why the church seems to be farther and farther and farther away from where the culture is um and 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 so my work is is you know kind of just beginning i just enrolled in the program but um a lot of what I'm looking to do is to figure out how do we as the church begin to bridge that divide, um, not for the purposes of doing something um, underhanded or sneakily, you know, sharing the gospel with someone, but really 
you know, engaging with it authentically so that we can share the gospel in authentic ways mm-hmm. through stories that are already out there, through stories that already exist and have meaning for people in their lives. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I was uh, listening to um, some interviews with Mike Flanagan, right? And it's also something I've been thinking about too, is like, just to let people, some of our listeners know, if you haven't seen Midnight Mass, like, look, there's strong language, like there's gore, right? It's about vampires, right? I'm sorry, spoilers, right? It's, it's, uh, but they don't use the word. They actually intentionally don't use the word vampire. Uh, but anyways, um, and, you know, a lot of Mike Flanagan says, and I also say is like, you know, if you get offended by that, it's like, have you looked at the Bible? I mean, the Bible's very gory. I mean, it's very like mystical. I mean, it's, it's, it's very violent. And I think the Bible is actually a lot more in line with like our popular culture than we realize, you know? Um, and I think, and then there's a lot of like sex, there's like a lot of shocking material in the Bible. Um, and I think the, the sooner we realize that the Bible is probably more honest about our world than we are, uh, you know, the more willing we'll be to engage in things like you're talking about. So this kind of like goes into something that I wanted to touch on Can at I the beginning. Oh yeah, 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 please go ahead, Bob. I want to pick up on one thing that Paul said. Yeah. As Paul was talking about the, the need to, to engage where the culture, culture is actually at, we all have probably heard this somewhere along the way, but it is worth remembering at the Reformation, Luther made the decision that maybe we need to find ways to include the people a little bit more, and he wanted to do singing, and so where did he get the songs? From the local taverns. Mm. And he wrote theological music to them, but he draw, drew people in. Uh, turning to things like this in our culture right now is no different than what Luther was doing back when we created the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. And we need to find ways to engage people where they are and then invite them to reflect on the deepest, most important questions of life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think there's some really great questions that are brought up in this series that are worth looking into. And, and the first one I wanted to tackle, and I was this is very impressive to me, was their use of scripture and the connection of like scripture and institution of religion. Like, and I think that they're trying to do is like show like there are actually, even within the church, there's like an institution of human organization and an institution of spirituality, right? And I found that it was very, it was very nuanced, but there was like this kind of like two ways of using scripture there. And I was very like, cause I've seen like a lot of films and I've seen how scripture is used all the time in pop culture, but you could definitely see like, Mike Flanagan's writing was like a, a level above most people when they incorporate scripture, even when it was used like out of context, it was used like very well, like it was very thoughtful. Um, and he didn't just like kind of proof text, you know, just like drop in like his favorite verse. He really kind of went for it through that Bev character. And I was just thinking a lot about how uh, so much of how we define our institution of faith, whether that be physical or spiritual, is really our use of scripture, like the formation, like how scripture actually really forms a community. And I was just wondering, like some of your thoughts about, you know, the use of scripture um, in the series, because I I almost feel like the Bible is like, it's almost like a main character, I thought, you know, uh, in the series. And so I I was just wondering some of your thoughts about the use of scripture throughout the series. So, uh... I mean, one of the things that I really liked was that we both saw scripture used 
in ways that lifted up its context and then also scripture intentionally ripped out of context. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, so, so the, the character of Bev Keen, um, you know, when, when she needed to, she wielded scripture like a club. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we've all seen that happen. Um, maybe even in our churches, um, but, uh, but certainly within our culture writ large. Um, and, uh, but but then we also saw people who who treated scripture, you know, uh, taking into account the fullness of its context, and 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 for all that that uh, that especially uh, as the series progresses, the 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 theology of the sermons that uh, that Father Paul is giving becomes questionable. They are in fact grounded in the scriptures that he's you know, lifting up beforehand, which is not something that always happens um, in, in pop culture representations of religion and particularly of preaching. So I was uh, appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. For sure. I think you're mentioning about like that weaponization of scripture. I think you, you definitely saw like a masterclass in how to do that. But then you also saw kind of like this interesting counter narrative. And I wonder if people aren't listening to the, the script carefully, that like you're seeing these two different ways. Like, I remember there was a moment where um, Aaron Green is kind of saying, like, I'm going to go back into the town to save people. And, you know, there's no greater love than that. Right. I mean, that's what the good book says. And I was like, she was trying to do it very like off the cuff. But I was like, wow, that's a really powerful counter use of scripture to like the weaponization that you see in the in the Bev character. Um, and uh, that was so I think that's just like a really kudos to the writer like just trying to figure out how to do that but to the to the uninterested you might blanket all of that but I think if you lean in a bit like he's very aware of like there are there are life-giving ways to use scripture and also like ways that it can really take life too um Bob you know when we were talking about very briefly in that zoom session like you identified so many theological themes um and I was wondering like was there one theological theme that really stood out to you that was like wow, this is a really profound way of how they're expressing this in a new way. I certainly think that the uh, it's not much of a spoiler if it's the first uh, five minutes of the entire series as you open up on, uh, you open up looking at a car with the fish yes. on the bumper and pull back from this. So that tells you where you're going from the very first moment of the film to a guy sitting on the curb who you quickly realize is handcuffed uh, looking over at the girl he's just hit with his car, being trying to resuscitate her, and and frankly, in a matter of you know the first two minutes of the film, you realize this is a tragedy in a sense for this person because everything that his life had been is now changed, and he has to come to terms with who he always thought he was and who he had become, and and what he had done, and whether there could ever be any redemption for a person who has done something like this, in one sense. What begins as a story of personal redemption ends up being a question of redemption for our culture in terms of uh, Bev on one hand and Aaron on the other hand, ending up being in some ways more the main characters who are playing out religion with its literalism versus a kind of a view of faith that is more simple and yet asking the deeply profound questions of what faith is supposed to be about. So there's sacrifice, there's redemption, there are, as you've just said, Sam, moments where people are doing things that are at the heart of scripture, to love thy neighbor as thyself rather than act selfishly, to act selflessly. So all of these kind of deeply embedded theological themes 
um, are coming out. And they're coming out not because somebody went to seminary and figured out how to do the church. They're coming out from a person who grew up in the church, struggled with what the church is, and now trying to figure out, but what is there in there that is the kernel that is so terribly important that he must keep it versus the stuff that just looks like it goes crazy. And, and for me, that's what this whole episode is. They just use the horror genre as a, as a venue to get there because it, it, with all those scriptures that Paul was talking about a minute ago that could be overly read with a literalism, it's there. It's there kind of to be made stuff out of. And so the, the other theme that comes out is you see this two ways of, of going about life. One that is self-sacrificial, trying to help others, versus one that is self-centered and trying to just figure out why we're the right tribe. Yeah, and yeah. we're going to do our tribal thing and, and we don't care about anybody else. I think that there's other religions that are brought into this in an interesting way. One of the main characters is also from a different faith struggling with what that means. All of these things are in here in, in this series. And those questions are the heart of the story for which horror is just used as the genre that can explore it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, I think you've really hit on it. Like if I could say like one of the strongest themes of this series is probably the the concept of redemption and i don't know if you did this but uh if you know this already but i did some research about midnight mass just for, just to prepare for today and it i didn't realize that this story is actually very personal to mike flanagan he says this is his most personal thing he actually stood he struggled with alcoholism and he said that one of his greatest fears was if his addiction overtook him and he actually killed somebody and he lived and so a lot of this was learning how to, what, what, what is involved in recovery, redemption, and forgiving yourself, you know, and forgiving others. And there are so many poignant moments, right? Like, um, I, I, I also have tried to read a couple of critiques and like, you know, going to the end, you just talked about the beginning. I'm going to, I'm going to go right to the end because I'm mean. So remember, I already told you, spoiler, but <laughs> One, one critic said like they were very unhappy about this film because they didn't like how the end, everyone's just singing near my God to thee, just looking at the sunset. It's a beautiful scene and it seems like everything's washed away. But I, I don't think that at all because a lot of why the last couple of episodes are so gory is to see like, we are just awful, ugly people, all of us. And like, I think that scene with where Bev has her hands covered in blood, I immediately think of like Shakespeare and Macbeth, right? Like Lady Macbeth and her hands are blood. Like it's kind of all of us have some kind of blood on our hands. And uh, there is this profound moment uh, near the end where, you know, one of the younger, the teenager says like, I think I killed my mom. Like he's covered in blood. He's like, I've done some bad things. Another person says, I've done some bad things. And like, this is literally the sacrament of like, you know, confession and I was just thinking a lot about how, um, what is it? We're in such a world, like he, I don't think he avows to be uh, religiously Catholic anymore. I don't know if he's actually, he defined himself as religious, but he's profoundly shaped by Catholicism. And he's a seeker. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, 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 was, I didn't um, find out my research, but yeah, if he is, it, it makes total sense because you, you get the sense is like all of us, it, like take away all the religious trappings all of us are looking like for redemption we're looking for someone to say i forgive you right there's something so compelling about that scene i was also thinking about the movie magnolia 
you know, it kind of ends off with that, that phrase of just saying like, you know, in the end, I think we just all want to be forgiven, you know? And it's like, you feel like when you hear that, like in this film, it's like, this is a profoundly spiritual religious moment is like, we're all looking for that path to redemption. And I, I think that is really done thoughtfully throughout. And I'm really impressed by it. You sent me an article that talked to, and the very last part of that, in the last paragraph, uh, the director writer of this thing says that, uh, that's why I'm calling him a seeker. He said, I've come to the point where working my faith and or what faith there was that I was raised with and what my questions are now to realize that there are two questions that are fundamental. What kind of person am I really going to be and, and, and what's going to happen after death? Those are what he says, two central questions to mm -hmm. faith. And then he finally says, and I, I'm, I, I'm working on that first one. I don't know that I have any answers about the second one, but the one thing I do understand is what that second question really is just answered in many ways by the first one. What's going to happen after death is, is really just really a matter of who you choose, whether you choose to be the selfless person or selfish person or whatever in life that what, what meaning there is in life is, is going to be what meaning there isn't in any life beyond life. Mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever that second thing is can't be separated from the first thing. And that is a profoundly religious worldview that I think is fascinating, which is why I say he's a seeker. He's just not going to do it inside the box that we've created called religion yeah. in the traditional sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that brings us to maybe like kind of another thing that I saw as a really strong theme in Midnight Mass is like this whole concept of like, what is life? What is death? What is afterlife? And this is the genius of Midnight Mass. Like I totally admit, is that the the genre of vampire folklore is perfect for this right because you're talking about uh death undead right like um coming back to life and of course how do they come back to life is through the ingestion of blood right through the devouring of flesh um it's so breaking the body <laughs> yeah breaking the body literally and so like there's so much rich metaphor here that fits so perfectly with christianity but at the same time is completely dissonant with like the christian message so it's it's brilliant. It's like a wonderful genre of uh, just smashing these two together because they have so much in common. And um, I think Bobby really touched on this really interesting thing of like, what is life? Because like, I think a traditional understanding of life is like, well, we're all waiting for the afterlife. Do we get to heaven or not? But it's pretty evident that some people are kind of like living in hell, even though they're alive right now, you know? And, um, and even though they come back to life, uh, they haven't really changed uh, or they have completely changed. And so it's kind of like all these interesting questions of the afterlife. I was wondering, um, Paul, I mean, what were your thoughts about, because uh, I want to ask both of you, but I want to start with Paul. Is like, there's two very profound scenes where they talk about what do you think happens when you die, right? Um, and it's it's a very risky move because like, if you look at the edits, like directorially, like it's a very long edit it's a lot of words. That's a risky thing for a director to do, a writer to do, to have a scene with that many words. But I, I think it was a very compelling scene, both of them. Um, but I was just thinking maybe your thoughts, you know, cinema, cinematically or theologically or whatever. But maybe Paul, did you have any thoughts about those kind of monologues about, you know, what happens when you die? Sure. So one of the things that I really appreciate that Mike Flanagan did is that he, he refused to set up anyone as a straw man. 
There were yeah. no straw man atheists. There was no straw man. You know, one of the characters is Muslim. You know, there was he wasn't a straw man either. You know, two of the characters were Muslim actually. Um, and uh, and certainly, you know, while while we saw different kinds of people of faith within the the Catholic or or you know Christian writ large church that they represented, um, you know, they uh, there weren't really any straw men there either, right? And and so you end up with this profound moment um, where there's this conversation happening um, between uh, Riley and Aaron, who are people who have loved each other in the past, who are maybe finding their way towards loving each other again. Um, and, and I think it's important that that scene starts with Aaron thanking Riley for praying with her all day. And, you know, she says, I know that doesn't mean anything for you. And he says, no, but I get the sense of comfort from it, right? Mm. I understand why you wanted to pray. And so I was going to pray with you because that's what you wanted to do. I'm paraphrasing, but um, but then you end up having this, this deep conversation. They, they ask each other this critical question, what happens when we die? And they each have their own unique answers. And Riley answers from a very sort of scientific atheistic perspective but even within that it's still a spiritual perspective spiritual. yeah um, and 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 you know that that i really appreciate it because i know plenty of very spiritual people who don't believe in god at all um and uh so um yeah i mean i i, I that scene in particular i agree it was very risky not only that because you you might alienate a portion of your audience you know, because you gave the quote unquote wrong answer. Right. Um, I, I also really appreciated the fact that we actually don't see that whole scene. Mm -hmm. We see part of it and then we get it reprised at the very end. Mm -hmm. We get her answer about what she thinks happens for herself. Right. Um, um, because when she answers, she doesn't answer on her own behalf, but on behalf of the child who is now no longer there uh, in her womb, you know, which, uh, and, and, and I just, I thought that, um, I thought that both of their answers were both, you know, grounded and also, um, worthy, you know, um, while I think I tend to agree more with, with Aaron's answer personally, um, coming from a place of faith, um, then, uh, you know, neither of the answers was, you know, just, oh, well, and then we die, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was so impressive about it was like, it was so vulnerable, wasn't it? Because I think the, the real powerful thing for both of them was like, they acknowledged, like, we just don't know. And, you know, this is what we are, we are pining for. This is what we feel in our spirit that we're longing for. And I think that just that disarming honesty, that vulnerability is very compelling. So I think it was a very powerful scene. Um, yeah, Bob, what are your thoughts? Say that if you're talking about creating a narrative arc, from beginning to end and, and the movements of it, that conversation is the utter center of this entire series. Right. Everything that the series moved to is that conversation. And if you didn't know it, even though the design tells you that, uh, the very fact that Paul said that something happens at the very end where that conversation gets revisited tells you it was the climactic moment of the entire series, which is why a question about what happens when we die as the climactic center of a <laughs> this is a deeply spiritual investigation and and if you were if you didn't get it you knew it then and uh so that's why i was profoundly moved when i watched this to say that 
I find it to be an important show in terms of investigating, in a sense, what spirituality and religion and the questions that we ought to be asking one another out there without trying to push some kind of literalistic religious worldview down somebody's throat. What are the deep questions that hunger in people's souls that we should be asking? And how do we conduct those questions in meaningful ways? This series, for all of us, it's really trying to do that with real conversations between people really trying to talk their way through this and understand one another. And boy, if, if we are asking, where does the church need to be right now? Or at least not the church, where does Christianity need to be right now? Or world religions need to be? right now that's where we need to be yeah and you know bob this is a really great way that you're putting it because i do feel like that was a central moment in the series and it's interesting isn't it during this conversation you can barely hear it but it's almost like three times slower speed but the, the song that's being played in the background is actually near my god to thee right and then at the end of why i think that actually the final scenes of the series are powerful is because they reprise that with um everyone singing that song and isn't those conversations talking about like, how can I get near, what is that my, uh, how can I become nearer in my approach to divinity, right? To God, right? And that's a very ambitious thing to do, like in a vampire like series, but they really are asking that big question of like, what does it mean to come near to God? And there seems to be this connection of like, it's about kind of like peace with self, like redemption of like, the quality of what, what is new life, like I'm unpacking all these amazing things and in ways that are definitely not like traditional church. Um, and I, I think like it also shows the humility of like how, what is nearness to God like? I mean, I think of C.S. Lewis talking about nearness to God by um, proximity and approach, you know, like a lot of us uh, think we're getting closer to God by proximity, but we're actually even farther away. But like, what does it mean to really approach nearer to like this divine grace, I think is really powerful. Um, there's so much good stuff here, uh, everyone is saying. I do wanna throw in one more thing that I found so compelling. I, I can't resist talking about this and I, I probably should wrap up or else we're gonna talk about this for, for years, but this powerful connection between free will and determinism. I found this is really in there. And why I wanna talk about this because I think it's brilliant how they've done this on multiple levels again because, you know, Flanagan was an alcoholic. He, he talked about his recovery process and this whole thing about um, recovery and addiction. And what, what a, uh, there's so much great material in the vampire folklore, again, about this bloodlust, right? This desire for blood, like it's an addiction. Uh, Riley struggles with addiction. And then I immediately thought of the scriptures about Paul talking about, you know, I do what I do not want to do right? And the very thing I don't want to do, I do, right? And it's talking about, are we stuck? Like, are we trapped in like some kind of determined, are we, are we uh, enslaved to um, the addiction, right? And in theological terms, right? The addiction of sin, right? And, uh, or do we have some kind of like free will? And that's why I thought it was really interesting. There's a very brief scene when like, um, uh, Riley's parents become vampires and they talk about like I feel the hunger I feel the hunger but you don't have to do it you can still choose like and it kind of talks about like also a really interesting thing about like the new life and the new creation is that even when we kind of become a new creation we still have choices 
you know, and though we do have inclinations, we do have hungers. And so I thought it was like just a really thoughtful thing. I don't think it gives answers, but more like questions talking about like, can you balance? Like, it's not just like you are doomed to be like a victim of your determined, you know, passions, but also you um, also have agency, you have choice. And then even when you make bad choices, there's a lot of space for grace and compassion. And I thought that was, that was really profound. I mean, I, I think I, I was very impressed by the nuance of that and like the multi-layers of that. That was very compelling to me. And I was just wondering like any, any thoughts you folks had on it, like uh, just bring it together. I know that was a mouthful, but. So I really thought that, that um, a big part of the story um, in, in terms of, of Riley's redemption, right, of, of, of his redemption arc comes down to him making the choice to own that's right decisions um and 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 we see it there's a there's an aa meeting that he has with the father where he's having this conversation and he yeah. talks about how there's this other guy this jerk who comes out who does things and then all of a sudden like it's it's like he catches himself and then he goes no that's that's me that's right and 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 and, and he owns it and then and then when when he goes out on the boat with Aaron after yeah. his resurrection Mm -hmm. he's in the position to essentially fall off the wagon again, right? <laughs> to, to, to give in to what comes next. And instead mm -hmm. he chooses to own his stuff. And, and, and he says, you know, I'm out here. Um, so yeah. Riley, you know, the, the, the series opens with the Jesus fish and it pans out and we see the girl and every night before he goes to sleep, we're given to understand that Riley sees this girl. Yeah. That's the same girl who comes to Riley after. Yeah, horribly him. disfigured by the accident, right? right? Horribly disfigured by the accident. Oh, and her whole restored yeah. is the one who comes to escort Riley, or at yeah. least shows up to Riley in those last moments, yeah. reaching out a hand for him um, yeah. as, 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 as he gives his life, right? As yeah. he chooses another path. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that would that to me was incredibly powerful. I, yes. I will I will honestly say that I was crying um, yeah. as I watched it. Yeah. It's a that, redemption. Yeah. And that, the other thing is for those anybody who's listening to this and say, Oh, I don't want to watch a vampire series, the vampire is just a way to encapsulate the temptations of evil. Yeah. And that the temptations of evil come to us, not inviting us to become evil. They invite us to become more, to be better, to have more. But they're always self-centered in terms of your need, your hunger to have more. Hunger here being encapsulated by that kind of vampire need to feed on, on others. Uh, but, but there's a sense. So, so what you have is the free will of some people saying, just because we've been cast into this evil does not mean we have to choose to be evil. Yeah, that's that's very when, yeah. when we start unpacking this, this entire thing is just the, the most profound, one of the most profound, far more than the exorcist or something like that. This is a profound story about where might we think about the nature of faith today in terms of uh, whether you're doing it spiritually in a scientific way or, or spiritually in a faith-based way. How does one find oneself getting redemption? finding meaning and choosing not to just be overtaken by evil and live self-centered rather than selfless lives. We are called to be selfless. Yeah, you know, this is interesting too, because what you're talking about, like um, the 
the director and producer intentionally told the cast and they made a uh, like a ground rule like we're not going to use the word vampire intentionally because if you use that you're going to bring all that folklore into it and we only want to actually call it the angel that's it which is an interesting choice right because if you know the word angel right it means like messenger right it's a literal translation of messenger right so it's about like what is the message that's being spoken so the 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 vehicle of the vampire, this is not like a true vampire movie because it's not about vampires. It's about, they're using this folklore, but it's about like, what is this message and what do we do with the message, right? Is kind of what you're talking about, Bob, which I, I think you said really well, is like, what are the choices we make when we receive this opportunity? Like, does it change us for the better or does it change us for the worse? Because like everyone receives the message of the angel, right? And you see what it does to a lot of the town folk um, and, and like the horror and the gore that comes after, but then you also see like how actually the message can also be a path to redemption, right? Like you see at the end for Aaron and for Riley and that, yeah, that, that, that boat scene, I actually literally watched it a couple of times. I don't know. I just, I had to keep watching it. Cause like, it was so powerful. I kind of wanted to soak in it for a bit. Um, and the fact is like, all he needed to say was like, I tried. And then that was, that was enough you know, and he did the right thing. And redemption was granted to him, like the, the girl appears to him whole and complete. And um, all these interesting metaphors of like sunrise, you know, oh. <laughs> a divine, you know, kind of encounter, all this stuff, amazing stuff. Um, so anyways, uh, there's so many more things to say. And I'm, I'm even contemplating, like, do we need to have more episodes about this? But Paul and I were actually talking, like, maybe we're onto something like, there's, I really enjoy doing this, like just talking about culture and theology. Uh, it's something I've always been passionate about, even my music and, uh, and in other genres of art. So uh, I definitely don't want to feel like we're bringing this conversation to a close, but maybe it's kind of like a doorway going forward. So I'm just so thankful for my friends here uh, giving this time. Uh, it's been so wonderful, uh, very rich and uh, even some of the things you're saying, I'm like, I'm going to go back and see that episode again. Uh, so much there. So thank you, friends, for uh, just being there and being present to uh, process with me. There's nothing more rewarding than seeing something really great and then having friends to talk to you about it, you know, just to like unpack it with. So thank you very much. Um, thanks for joining. Uh, kind of a different sort of episode for JBC Connect. Hope you enjoyed it and hope there's more to come. So thank you, friends, for your time. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for having us. We really yeah. appreciate it being here. All right. Peace be with you all. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.